We're continuing this series on sex, and um, uh, I called it sex rules, sort of trying to pick up the idea on the one hand, in our culture, sex seems to be uh, the new idolatry, and uh, Josh, you need, to, you need to come down from there, mate. I, I, I can do this without musical accompaniment. Come on down, come on down. Why don't you come down here and sit next to Chris? You can do that for me? Thank you. All right. Um, called it Sex Rules because it picks up the idea that sex plays this extremely pr prominent part in, in all our lives, in all different ways, but also in our media, and we, we looked at that in the first, uh, in the first week. And, uh, and last time, we looked particularly at this question of desire because it seems to me that much of the discourse in our culture is based upon the idea that people have desires and that really is what defines them, their desires. And, um, and therefore, nobody is in a position to criticize anybody else's way of defi defining themselves around their desires. And we looked a little bit from a Christian perspective how desire is untrustworthy. And that just because we have desires doesn't necessarily mean that we should just fulfill them. But the Bible actually teaches us to be self-controlled. All right. So um, we then come this week, and I'm just going to look, give you an overview of what the Bible actually says about sex. And uh, there's a lot in the Bible about sex because sex is a big part of life. So I can't even possibly start to go through all of it. But we're going to pick up some of the highlights, and you'll be able to... Um, you'll be able to, uh, to work with those, and, and it'll be a good start at least. So perhaps I could have the next slide. Just to remind you again, these are the three books that I am recommending if you want to take this a bit further. Uh, Glyn Harrison is uh, a retired professor of, I think, psychiatry or psychology, one or the other, and um, has written this book called A Better Story, in which essentially what he's saying is that in our culture around us, people are saying the way to liberty is through freedom of sexual expression. And he says that, that typically Christianity is viewed and other religious systems that might want to place restraint upon sexual behavior as like constraining people's freedom. He is actually saying that the Christian understanding of sex actually brings more freedom than the alternatives. It's a really insightful book. Uh, John Mark Comer has written this really great book, uh, he's called it Loveology, just talking more broadly about romance and the relationship between men and women and what God had in mind, and Rob Bell much the same. Rob Bell unfortunately has sort of departed from Orthodox Christian teaching, but he wrote that before he had departed from Orthodox Christian teaching. See ya, oh, oh bless you. Uh, so any one of these books uh, uh, you will find helpful in following, following up what we have to say. So let's start, by, uh, let's start at the beginning, and um, some of this I touched on very briefly uh, in the first week, and I'm going to go into a bit more detail, but we'll stop from time to time. But before we, um, before we look at this, I'm, I'm wondering if anyone's going to be brave. What, how would you sum up... I'm not going to pick on anyone, don't worry. If, you don't, if you're going to sit there in stony silence and say, I'm not talking about sex in public, James, forget it. Just leave it to me. That's no problem. But if you would like to, I'd be interested to know, how would you sum up what the Bible says about sex? If you were asked, so what does the Bible say about sex? What answer would you give to that question? 
Well, we're going to work through some of this. So, uh, next slide, please. Um, so, this picks up really what Peter's saying. Uh, first things first, positively, sex is a good gift. So, often, Christians are perceived because they want to put some boundaries and people of other religious systems or just people who are conservative in their ethics, they're seen as kind of old-fashioned and traditional and uh, perhaps perceived as being down on sex because we want to put some boundaries around it. But properly understood, and it's really important this, as a foundation, I think Pete's statement is the first thing that should come out of our lips. The first thing that should come out of our li lips is this is a good thing. God has given us a good thing. So just as we think with food, similarly, a very strong appetite, you'll die if you don't eat. Food is a good thing, but I think we'd all agree that we function best if there's some boundaries about how we f use food. In exactly the same way, sex is a good thing. God has given us an appetite for it. It's a wholesome appetite, and it's a good gift. So I think it was... Um, uh, Rob Bell, who came up with this chapter title, God Wears Lipstick. I think it was Rob Bell as opposed to John Car Mark Comer. It's merging together in my mind. But I like that idea, the idea that God is not opposed, in principle, to sex, sexual attraction, and all that goes with it. Okay, in fact, on the contrary, it was his idea. And I've got some scriptures there that you could have a look at. So if we if we look right at the start of the Bible, Genesis 1, there are allusions to sexual activity straight away as soon as human beings are made. So God, Genesis 1, 27, God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number be fruitful and increase in number. Now, how is that going to happen? It's going to happen through sexual activity, right? Because that's how children are born. So that really comes to your point then, Sally, that there's this very strong link between sexual expression and childbirth. And then the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 23, we've got the first love poem, which is the man, after he meets the woman for the first time, says this uh, poem, which is a bit lost on us. It's translated uh, Genesis 2:23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, it doesn't sound particularly romantic to us, that. Probably not going to write it in a Valentine's card. But this is an expression in the original Hebrew. Scholars say this is sort of more of a, a, an expression of delight. Okay? So it's the guy looking at the girl, and something happens inside... And this is his expression of delight. And similarly, we've got this whole book, the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, as it's sometimes called, which is a whole celebration of um, sexual attraction and ultimately of sex, the sexual act itself. So the Bible is not negative about this. In fact, it's all quite up front and center in the Bible, and sex is a good gift. And sexual attraction is nothing in principle to be ashamed of. In fact, it is part of God's plan that we would be motivated uh, and have a strong appetite for sex because otherwise the human race would die out in one generation, right? Okay. But secondly, 
However, if our sex drive is not a curse, and it isn't, it is, however, cursed. So when we look at Genesis 3, as a consequence of the fall, relationship between the sexes has become corrupted by God's curse on human sin. That's what we've got in Genesis chapter 3. So um, he talks about the woman desiring her husband and her husband dominating uh, the wife. So she'll desire him and he will rule over you. That was not part of God's initial creation. Neither is it something to be desired. It is something that happens as a result of the fall. That... um, that men can become controlling over women and dominate them. Women suffer severe pain in childbirth, not part of God's intention. Oh, goodness, I'm very tempted just to point out to you here, perhaps it's important I do so. Some people argue for male headship or rulership from this passage. Now, there are other passages you could appeal for that, to that you could appeal for, for that belief, but you can't use this one unless you're prepared to be consistent. If you're prepared to be consistent, then you would be against pain relief in childbirth because that too is part of God's curse. You'd also be against any kind of labor-saving devices in agriculture, like tractors, because the, the... the process of farming is supposed to be through painful toil, according to this. That's God's curse. All right. So there's no justification for male dominance here. It's something to be overcome. But it is a fact of the world that men will tend to dominate women. It's not something that's right, but it's something that tends to happen. The relationship between the genders has been corrupted. And our sex desire, our sexual desire, has become corrupted by it too. And so God has put in place boundaries because this is an appetite which has become corrupted. We talked a lot about that last week. Because our appetite gets corrupted in all sorts of ways, God puts down some boundaries. Exactly the same as food. You know, it would be great, wouldn't it? And some of us are maybe fortunate enough to have complete control over our appetite for food. You know, some people I know, they just say, I I eat what I need to. You know, I could have a chocolate, but it doesn't bother me. And you know that whole routine I did last time about my problem with chocolate, right? And it's illustrative of the same thing with sex. There are some people who this is not so much of a deal for. The, the, The boundaries seem perfectly acceptable to them. They don't really feel strongly driven to behave outside of the boundaries with sex that God has given us. But the truth is, for a lot of people, that's not true. For a lot of us, we find ourselves drawn towards sexual activity that God would rule out. All right. And I called it Satan's nuclear bomb because the effects of, um, you know, if you overeat once, you're unlikely to die you're unlikely to have a catastrophe. But one choice, once, to disobey the rules on sex can potentially have enormous impact on your life in all sorts of different ways. 
it can cause real difficulty very quickly. Not least because you suddenly could have a child that you weren't expecting. Not least because you could pick up a very nasty disease. All sorts of possibilities if we act outside of the boundaries, right? So God gives us some boundaries. Let's, let's just turn to Proverbs. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And, and the reason is it's so graphic. And it, it, the Proverbs are brilliant because they kind of give you little images that stick in your mind. And this, to me, is the most lively of those images. You find it in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 to 29. Now, as a pastor, to use John Mark Homer's memorable phrase, I get a front row seat when stuff, when people mess up their lives. And I have sat in a room with someone more than, well, more than once really when their marriages are breaking down and sometimes it's because someone has had an affair. And at the time it all seemed very exciting. Then the shame set in. Then it came to light. Then they're dealing with potential lifelong consequences from one, sometimes just one occasion. And I remember quoting this to someone. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Just this very graphic image have an affair with someone who's not your wife, with somebody else's wife, you might as well get hot coals and pour them onto your lap, the damage that you are doing. Nuclear bombs need radical answers, I suppose. Now, the longest section in the Old Testament dealing with sexual activity directly is found in what's called the Holiness Code in Leviticus, although there's many other passages we could go to this is the most extended. So you find the Holiness Code in Leviticus 18 through 20, and it, de- it basically acts as a commentary on the Ten Commandments. It's, it's kind of an elong- elaborated version of the Ten Commandments, but an awful lot of it focused on this particular prohibition of sex outside of marriage or, or more strictly, not sleeping with, not, not committing adultery. But the Bible clearly then extends it to all sorts of other settings in which you shouldn't have sex. Now, I don't possibly have the time to go through it all, but there are three particular types of sex which are condemned in the Holiness Code. One of them is sexual relations with a close family member. The second one is sexual relations with an animal. And the third one, in particular, is homosexual sexual relations. Those three are ruled out. They are seen as, in, old, uh, in the Old Testament era, a capital offense. That is, if you do any of those things, you have removed yourself by that action from the community. And so they have this extreme reaction of the death penalty. Okay, now you've got to bear in mind, this is the ancient world. There's death penalties for all sorts of stuff. And Jesus certainly removed any suggestion of the death penalty for sexual immorality when he engaged with the woman who was caught in adultery. You remember that story? And he basically said, he didn't say what she'd done was right, but he removed 
any idea that there would be a death penalty for what she had done. So that's what you find in Leviticus. And um, frequently you then find in the New Testament uh, condemnation of what's called, sex, what's translated in our Bibles, sexual immorality. That is a Greek word, pornea, and you'll know the connotations of that word because of our word, pornography. Pornea is translated as sexual immorality in the New Testament. And the most likely understanding of what Paul in particular uses that phrase quite a lot, but others do too, the most likely understanding of that word is that he is drawing together these activities which are immoral, according to the Bible, and he is saying these activities, they no longer require any kind of death penalty, obviously, post-Jesus, but they do exclude you from the Christian community. Let's look at an example of this. So if you go to 1 Corinthians 6, which I think 1 Corinthians 6, the second half of it, is the clearest teaching we have in the New Testament on sexual immorality. So we're going to start by looking at the end of it. Paul says this, flee from sexual immorality. That's this word pornea. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And so Paul really is... um, is asserting along the same lines as we find in the Holiness Code that our sexuality must be tamed. It must be trained. And sexual immorality, as a catch-all term for anything outside of God's purpose with sex, are serious offenses against God. And we'll come to look at it a little more in a moment or two, what he has to say before that. So serious that earlier in the chapter he says this, neither the sexually immoral, same word, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. So he's saying, look, these lifestyles were what you used to be. Once you're inside the kingdom, this cannot be your lifestyle anymore. Now, he doesn't mean by that that people don't make mistakes. Christians don't make mistakes. They clearly do, right? So, you know, uh, look at Jesus. Let who is without sin cast the first stone. Is anyone going to hear, even post- becoming a Christian, going to claim they have been sexually pure as a driven snow ever since? Of course not. And so there's forgiveness. But that's different from a lifestyle where you say, I am committed, I'll do what I want with my body, it's my body, I, I'll live how I please. Paul says, your body doesn't belong to you anymore. Jesus bought it on the cross. Your job now is to honor God, using language that's reminiscent of be holy, because I am holy. All right. We talked last week at some length about this, this sense then that our 
sexuality is a powerful desire that has begun corrupted. I won't go into that this time because last time we looked at that at great length. But just to underline the point, Paul says earlier in this chapter 6, I have the right to do anything you say, he's quoting the Corinthians, but not everything is beneficial, Paul responds. I have the right to do anything, they say, but I will not be mastered by anything, Paul responds. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God God will destroy them both. So the Corinthians are arguing, if I've got an appetite, I can indulge it, because if God created the appetite, you can hear this language uh, very commonly in our culture, if God created the appetite, it must be a good appetite to fulfill. To which Paul says, that's true, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality. It is meant for sex within the confines and the boundaries that God has laid out. It's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ himself and unite them with a prostitute? In all probability, it appears that some of the men were doing just that in the Corinthian church. And Paul says, never. Whoever is united with the Lord is one in him with spirit, but if you not unite yourself with a prostitute, you become one, in, one with her in body. So you see, if, if I uncovered that kind of behavior here in the church, I'd be tempted to say, if you do that, that's bad. God will be cross with you. You shouldn't do it. And uh, you're risking God's judgment. And in one sense, all of that is true. But that's not the pastoral strategy Paul adopts. He says, if you go and have sex with someone outside of God's plan... He's right there in the room with you, and you are dragging him in. That's what he says. You are uniting Christ to this person that you are sexually exploiting. He says, should you do that? Never. All right, next slide, please. Again, we focused on this last week, so I won't overdo it, but liberty, Paul says, is found not in the indulging of desires, but in the regulation of desire. So here's me with my problems with chocolate. Can't stop eating it. And here's Naomi, who is much more restrained than me. Does like chocolate, but she's generally on top of the situation. Who's free? What's the Bible say is the purpose of sex? Child rearing. We've already looked at Genesis 2:28. Self-giving. And this is perhaps a point at which the Bible is flatly at odds with the culture around us. We see very often we see sex turned into something that is for me to grab and dehumanizing everyone around me in my attempt to have sex with them. I mean, it's just horrendous. Everybody turned into a sex object. This is the corruption of culture and the corruption of godliness and what is noble. Sex is about self-giving. If we look at Ephesians 5 and verse 25 following... Sorry, give me a moment. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. And so that's a fantastic depiction of the loving husband as opposed to the self-indulgent adulterer. The one who sees this woman that he has committed himself to as the only object of his desire and his goal for her is that she would be holy and mature and that through his love and the sex, his sexual expression becomes part of that. Linked as it is to the birth of children, these are all good things. And it's so noble in comparison to what we see depicted on our TV screens on our, as soon as we look at the internet. And how about this from Paul's letter to the Corinthians? Now for matters you wrote about. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So Paul seems here to have a bit of a negative view of sex and says basically you should have sex with your marriage partner just to avoid getting into anything you shouldn't do. Um, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, so consumed with his ministry that he didn't have time, presumably for a, relation, for a relationship. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has one gift and another has that. I must say that this is, um, uh, that, that this is a chapter in which Paul does talk about the fact that he is only giving his own opinion as opposed to something he's had directly from the Lord. And it doesn't, it, I, I would say it's somewhat in tension with other parts of what the Bible says. It seems to have a less positive view of sex. But Paul is pragmatic and pastors often, often are because they see when things go wrong and it's so grievous when things go wrong. He is saying stay sexually active with your marriage partner so that you don't create an opportunity for an affair or, or any other form of sexual immorality. You do get one excuse if you, want to, uh, if you want to have time out from your sexual life, and that is if you commit yourself to prayer. So, you know, when you turn up at a prayer meeting with your wife, I'll know, what, I'll know what's going on. No, I'm joking. Uh, um, but the point I want to make here is that this is about self-giving, not grabbing. Uh, and I would say if you, if you want great sex, then within marriage learn to put the other person's needs first. Sex, just like all our appetites, needs to be managed with maturity. Uh, it's also for faithfulness. Again, one of the things we read there in Ephesians 5 is, is this picture of Jesus' faithfulness to the church. And so sexual expression is meant to be part 
of faithfulness and learning this exclusive love for one person and a relationship of trust. And of course, it is also for pleasure. Now, what I want to suggest to you then is that our culture has just ripped the first three away and said it's just all about pleasure. And so we've got a very dysfunctional view of sex because it then it plays into the broader idolatry surrounding pleasure in our culture. And people are reaping a harvest of misery. We'll come to that in a moment or two. All right, I'm done with the Bible teaching. I have a few other reflections I want to bring to you after an interval, but any questions or comments or disagreements or say what you like, anything, anything you want to get off your chest? How do you feel about all of this? Is there anything you think I've missed that should have been said? So I've got a little exercise for you to talk about now. Deep joy, you're thinking, don't worry, it won't be too embarrassing. Um, so I want you to imagine that, you, that there's a conversation going on and the opportunity comes for you to say something in a non-Christian setting about what you believe about sex. And uh, here's your moment. What do Christians think about sex? And we said at the beginning, well, we think the Christian teaching is, you know, only if you're married and at least one of you is a man and the other one's a woman. Or... Uh, you might say that, and instantly I'll be looking at homosexuality next week, so just shelve those questions, not next week, next session, so shelve those questions for the time being. Um, or we might say, you know, it's, um, it, it's boundaried by some rules. But then equally we might say some positive stuff. It's, it's God's way of propagating the human race. Or it, we might say, you know, it's a good gift to be enjoyed. What would you say... I think it's worth thinking about that because it might reveal what underneath it all, you, you, you know, you think God thinks about it. And I think we, it, it's actually an opportunity in our culture. It's the subject of a lot of conversation and thought in our culture. What would you say now? Probably depends what setting you're in to a certain extent. But here's a clue. A wise pastor once said to me, never be defined by what you're opposed to. Be defined by what you're in favor of. There's a lot of wisdom there. Don't be defined by what you're opposed to. Be defined by what you're in favor of. So, let's ask the question we started with. What is sex for? As a Christian, what would you have to say about it? If you've got the opportunity, one sentence or two sentences. Have a little chat with those around you. If you don't want to talk, no problem. Uh, I'm not putting you under any pressure to say anything, but equally, if you're happy to discuss that, discuss it. And let's see, what, uh, let's see what we come up with as a positive thing you could say if you were in a discussion about sex. To try and buck the idea, perhaps, that Christians are just somehow against sex, okay? Yeah, I mean, that's an important question. And I think... Those of us who get to my age, or perhaps to a, it affects women to a lesser extent, I don't know, I've never been one, but um, it's very easy to forget just how sex-obsessed and sexually driven young men in particular are. I sometimes joke, but when I think back on that, I think there were occasions when I wasn't thinking about sex, but not very many. And it's easy to forget just the 
challenge of living, uh, living according to God's guidelines when you're young. And I'll talk about grace in a minute or two with that because it's not just whether you're actually going to go and sleep with someone. And, and the statistics are, you know, we need to be realistic about it. But on the same, by the same token, it's just the fact that porn isn't ever present now. I said to a young woman not long ago, I said, would you marry a man who is addicted to porn? And she said, well, I wouldn't have any choice, would I? Hmm. This is a culture we're in. So we definitely need to say something about grace in here. Because there's a lot of people living with a lot of shame. And I I think one of the things is that when people do act contrary to the boundaries, like it or not, they've got a conscience and they're going to feel very often a lot of shame. You need to be careful that we don't just ladle that onto them. Because as Jesus said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. I, I think I would be inclined, at least in the first conversation I'm having with people, not to start appealing to the Bible. It's not that I'm not committed to the Bible. I hope my credentials there are clear. It's just that when you're talking with people who don't share any commitment to the Bible, all you're doing is begging another question as to why on earth they should pay any attention to what the Bible says, right? Um, I would be more inclined to try to say something positive about it and say something like, and say, be quite surprised, try and surprise the person and, 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 and create the possibility of opening up a conversation. So I might, I might, try, I might say something like, well, I, I think ultimately sex was God's idea. So I think, you know, it's, he's copyrighted it. it. It was him who came up with the idea in the first place, so I assume he thinks ex- he's extremely positive about it. If you say something like that, that would probably surprise people and I think it's true, and I think it's more true than simply leaving people with the boundaries. Because what you want to do is establish a foundation where the boundaries make sense. At the moment, to most people outside the church, the boundaries make no sense at all, because freedom is to be found in just doing whatever you like. If you actually start by saying, God lays claim to sex, it was his idea. He made us this way with all of our drivenness towards it, our appetite for it. Someone pushed me a bit more. I'd say, well, I don't know about you, but when I'm hungry, I really enjoy a meal. I think that was God's idea too. But I've also learned if I overeat, it's not a good idea. And so just as with food, really, I think, you know, we all need to learn. It's it's part of God's purpose to help us all to grow up and learn some self-control. I think that would be the way in to a discussion. Um, I think some way down the line, if someone gets interested, you might start to say, well, I do think God's put some boundaries in place, and I think we read about them in the Bible. But it's not because he's down on sex. On the contrary, it's because he's created it, and it's so powerful that if you don't have any boundaries around it, it can go very badly wrong. But always keeping that positivity about it, because it is a good thing. And we mustn't get trapped into thinking it's a bad thing. The perversions of it. Sexual immorality is a bad thing, but sex is a good thing. All right. Anyone want to follow up on any of that or ask any other questions? Pete. I think because we, we as Christians are anxious when we look at the culture around us 
and see it abandoning any proximity to Christian ethics, we kind of get into this reactionary mode of we've got to be, you know, we've, we've somehow got to close down on this. Actually, I think we need to open up and say, do you know what? I think sex is a really good thing, and I think we Christians have worked out how to do it right. That's the sort of thing we should say. Do it in a way which is life-giving. Well, let me give you a few other sort of headlines as to what I think the Bible says about sex, and then we're done. First of all, we need to recognize that in the culture around us then, sex is a god. Could I have the dethroning sex and romance slide up? That sex has become a god, and like all forms, and romance has become a god, actually. A lot of our Hollywood romance tales are so naive and so silly and ephemeral. You know, uh, if I think about the film The Titanic, which is portrayed as this great love story, they'd only met each other a few days, and they're seen, this scene is like the most wonderful romance. You think, they've met each other for literally, you know, a few days. There's nothing romantic about it. You can't get properly romantic in three or four days. Well, you, I suppose some, exception, some people exceptionally can. But the point I'm making is some, many of these stories are naive to the point of stupidity. I'll tell you what's romantic. is when somebody who has lived faithfully with their other half for decade after decade after decade one day stands by the graveside of their loved one and with tears in their eyes say, I fulfilled my vows to you. If we had children, we brought them up together faithfully. I lived my life with you, I grew old with you, I kept my word to you. That is romance. But we need to dethrone the idea that we can find meaning in our lives primarily through this. We can't. Meaning, ultimate meaning in life is found in God. And if you try to find ultimate meaning in your life, even with something really good like romance and family, it will not bear the weight. You'll end up disappointed. And as we look out on our culture, like Jesus who looked out and said he had pity on the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd on which listen to this morning's sermon, if you haven't had the chance. We should look out in our culture without self-righteousness, but in great pity for people who are trying to find meaning, going around the same circles of sexual promiscuity or failed relationships, always hoping that the next one might be the right one and haven't managed to actually put their foundations in God. So dethrone sex and romance and don't believe the lies that come down the screen through the latest chick flick or, and certainly not the lies of pornography. Secondly, depth holiness. The Christian teaching about sex is really to do with holiness. In the holiness code, the constant refrain is, be holy because I am holy. Be different from the culture around you Adhere to what God says. Don't get swallowed up by the, the standards of the culture around you. And Jesus really drives this home. Sometimes people say Jesus didn't say much about sex. 
It's certainly very common that people will say he never said anything about homosexuality, as if there's nothing he said that could be applied to these things. Let's look at Matthew 5 for a moment. By far the most important words on sex in the Bible because they're from the lips of Jesus in his famous Sermon on the Mount. And if you think the teaching so far was demanding, just you wait. Jesus said this, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Hmm. This is well serious. Jesus is saying it's not good enough just to obey the rules even. You've got to be transformed inside so that you never look lustfully. He's speaking to men, but it could equally be applied, obviously, to, to women as well. That you never look lustfully on anyone who you're not married to. Okay, so that's it. We're all dead, right? We're, I'm sure we can all agree with that. We'd do well to last the evening. The point here that Jesus is making, I believe, is... He's not just seeking to condemn us all. What he is saying is, in the end, it's not about rules. In the end, it's about you being transformed inside. So that if we're talking about me, when I look at women, it doesn't matter who it is, my wife or anyone else, I don't evaluate them for their sexual attractiveness. But I learn to see them as people that God loves. And my role in relating to them, obviously relate differently to my wife, to everyone else, but nonetheless, there is a consistency. I do what is good for their holiness. And that's because inside I've been changed, born again. Now, of course, nobody, Christian or otherwise, is claiming that they've mastered this. But this is a direction of travel. It won't be good enough in the end to stand before God and say, I, I obeyed the rules. The truth is, you won't be able to anyway. But the question God will ask is, were you transformed? Did you allow my spirit to come into your life and transform you and set you on a new path? And so Jesus, when he talks about holiness, he's not just talking about adherence to rules he's talking about what we might call a depth holiness that goes right into the core of your being and changes you so that when I do sin when I catch myself looking at someone in the wrong way something inside me is grieved and I quickly exert my will as soon as I'm able to to look away and I say to God I am sorry that is not the way I want to look on people Depth holiness. Third point, and I think this is really important if we get into serious conversation with people outside the church, this is one I'd want to bring up. So there's this word pornea, which is translated sexual immorality. It's a Greek word that is translated in the New Testament, sexual immorality, and every time it is used, we are told 
You cannot be a Christian and indulge in sexual immorality. These two things are oil and water. Now, we may fall, but you can't have a lifestyle of it. To the young man who might be struggling with pornography, you would say, sure, you may fall a lot of times, but you've got to wage war with this thing. You can never be, you can never make peace with it. It's not doing you any good at all, and it's clearly unrighteous, and it's terribly shameful. You're not the only Christian who's struggling with it. There is comfort in that. But equally, you've got, to, you've, you've got to be coming to God and seeking his help and seeking the help of other Christians around you to support you. God will forgive you and will come to grace in just a moment. Pornia is sin. It is a particularly sort of um, dangerous form of sin that has a lot of effect on us. Paul tells, it, tells us it's unique because it involves sinning against your own body. One of the consequences of, uh, of all the different forms of pornea is that they tend to destroy community. So they tend to destroy properly established relationships. So the person who is addicted to pornography finds it very hard to form normal sexual relationships and will find themselves increasingly evaluating other people for their sexual attractiveness because that's what they're drilling into their brain. The, the, um, the man or the woman who has an affair is risking corrupting their own marriage relationship and so breaking that relationship, breaking relationship with their children if they have them as a result, deeply affecting that relationship, breaking relationship with in-laws and with friends. One of the tragic things during marriage breakdown is the way in which every friend almost has to pick a side. Really difficult when you're in that situation. So pornea, like all sin, tends to corrupt community and worse. I would say the Bible's view of community is a very powerful stream of the Bible's teaching is this, and and this would be typical of more conservative cultures, that people my sort of age who are old enough to have a bit of experience in the tank but still young enough to be reasonably active we're supposed to spend our energies and what wisdom we've accumulated looking after the older generation and children. But if I'm lost trying to seek meaning for my life in pornea, I won't care about those two. I'll just care about myself. I might even abandon my own children in my search for pleasure and meaning. Stanley Gren said, sin is that which tends towards the corruption of community. The modern emphasis on sex and free, people being free to have sex as and when they please has done grave damage to our culture and particularly to children and the elderly who are left out of that discourse. And often children are seen as an inconvenience and elderly people are seen as irrelevant. The Christian community instead should appeal to people to live disciplined lives sexually so that they can particularly create a really good uh, foundation of married relationships for children to be brought up in 
and so that the elderly are not marginalized but looked after and cared for. Finally, and this is the most important word really, in one sense, if you've been thinking about these rules and think, well, I'm done for then, that's not a bad place to be because Paul did tell us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have lived right. Not one of us. Not one of us could have thrown a stone at that woman caught in adultery. And, and it may be there's been some, some episode in your life that just causes you terrible shame whenever you think about it. The way out of that is not to just tell yourself, well, everyone's doing it, because it doesn't alter the fact that you did it. The way out of that is to know this, that God loves you far too much to allow you to be defined by that moment. Whatever it was, however catastrophic it was, however selfish and shameful, whatever patterns of life that you find hard to resist, God's final word over you, if you will come to him humbly, is a word of grace. I remember speaking to my, my dad when I was much younger, because I, I, I understood most of this, but I hadn't really understood grace, which is remarkable, and it makes me think people can grow up in churches and listen to sermon after sermon, but somehow not grasp grace. So perhaps this will help you, because I, I spoke to my dad and I said, Dad, look, the struggle I've got is, you know, this just seems like I was, I was a young man at the time. I said, this just seems like a constant battle to me. It's not like I've done one thing or two things wrong. It's like, you know, dozens of times a day that I am falling into wrong ways of thinking and wrong ways of behaving. And my dad said, yeah, what's the problem? I said, well, shouldn't I be doing better than this? I'm paraphrasing what he said because I can't remember his exact words. He said, yeah, of course you should, but you probably won't. He said, but God's grace is sufficient for you, James. If you're truly sorry about it, if you truly want to change, if you're repentant, rest assured that God loves you. It doesn't cover us if we start to sin arrogantly and say, I don't care what God thinks. That's different. But every human failure was dealt with at the cross. And repentance... That is the expression to God of your deep desire to be living differently to how you can manage is enough to bring God's grace into your life. He'll forgive you forever. God bless you.